This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Look, this was a deeply personal act. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this is our weekly roundup where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. And on today's panel, returning to the roundup, senior advisor at the California Latino Economic Institute, my fellow co-founder of the Lincoln Project. He also lectures on race, class, and partisanship at USC. And finally turned in his manuscript just this week. Mike Madrid, how are you doing? How are you feeling? I feel like I'm walked out of a crypt now and I'm seeing sunlight for the first time in months. So, yeah, I'm doing good. I'm doing great. Feeling great about it, as you can tell. Also returning the roundup, Scott Tranter. Scott is the former director of data science for Marco Rubio's run for president. He is also an investor and advisor to Decision Desk HQ and an adjunct professor at American University, where he teaches quantitative and qualitative research in the School of Communication. Scott, good morning. How are you doing this week? Doing great. Doing great. It's a fun week in democracy. Man, oh, it was a doozy of a week. Uh, So up first, we're going to talk about the fact that for the first time in U.S. history, the House has voted the Speaker of the House out of office. We'll break down what that means and where we go from here. Then we're going to talk about Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s teasing a third-party presidential run, who it could help, who it could hurt. Finally, for our Politicology Plus subscribers, there have been a lot of headlines about strikes and organized labor this year. And we're going to look at the political and electoral implications of the renewed strength of organized labor across the country. To get ad-free access to the show, plus many more special episodes on a private podcast feed, head over to politicology.com slash plus, or just click the link at the top of your show notes. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Before we dive in, though, there's a lot of other news this week that we aren't going to get to in detail. Uh, last week, California Senator Dianne Feinstein passed away and Governor Gavin Newsom appointed LaFonza Butler president of Emily's List and the former leader of the state's largest labor union, SEIU, to fill the vacancy. Donald Trump is currently sitting through a civil fraud trial in a case brought by New York Attorney General Letitia James. He was put under a gag order, partial gag order, by the judge after posting photos of the court staff. 
Uh, while President Biden pursues gun control measures, Hunter Biden has now pleaded not guilty to federal gun charges and is preparing to, preparing to mount a Second Amendment defense to those charges. The White House announced that they're building 20 additional miles of wall at the U.S.-Mexico border, but they would really like you to not call it a wall. <laughs> and senior Biden advisors visited Saudi Arabia last week to continue talks on a potential what they're calling mega deal that could include peace talks between the Saudis and Israel, and uh, the authorization for U.S. weapons manufacturers to sell sophisticated weapons to the kingdom. Man, there's more, but I just wanted to run through a handful of the big, the big headlines that aren't on the docket today. But what is, is that on Tuesday, for the first time in history, the Speaker of the House was ousted in a no-confidence vote. So the move started after McCarthy was able to pass an 11th hour continuing resolution to fund the government until mid-November. Continuing resolution simply just means uh, a temporary stopgap. The, they keep spending at the current rates uh, and avoid a government shutdown on Saturday. So Congressman Matt Gates accused McCarthy of brokering a backroom deal with Democrats and the White House to put forward a vote on Ukraine aid. And then on Monday, Gates launched a vote to oust McCarthy. So here's a quick montage of how all this played out. The office of Speaker of the House of Representatives is hereby declared to be vacant. We don't have a fucking budget. We haven't had one since the mid-90s. Listen, Matt Gates had planned to do this from the very beginning. He never voted for me. He's one that challenged. He's the one that wanted to have this rule. He's the one that told the conference that he would never use it, but he was going to use it regardless whatever happened. He's got personal things in his life that he has challenges with. The gentleman from Florida, Mr. Gates, and the gentleman from Oklahoma, Mr. Cole, will each control 30 minutes. The chair recognizes the gentleman from Florida. I keep wondering, what is going on? Are we redefining what conservative is? What's going on in this country today? What's going on in this body? Where you have Freedom Works Heritage, Chip Roy and Jim Jordan say something's conservative, and these folks say it's not, and they're right. And all of a sudden, my phone keeps sending text messages, just saying, hey, give me money. Oh, look at that. Oh, look, give me money. I filed a motion to vacate using official actions, official actions to raise money. It's disgusting. It's what's disgusting about Washington. And Mr. Speaker, I don't know how this vote's going to go. Usually when a vote comes to this floor, it's pretty predetermined. And this one, I'm not so sure that this place deserves single subject spending bills, that we should have 72 hours to read a bill. That something that spends more than $100 million shouldn't be put on the suspension agenda such that we can't amend it. And there shouldn't be secret side deals made on a continuing resolution to lump Ukraine in with border security. On this vote, the yeas are 216. The nays are 210. The office of Speaker of the House of the United States House of Representatives is hereby declared vacant. Kevin McCarthy's short and rocky run as Speaker of the House of Representatives has come to an end. Tonight, for the first time in U.S. history, the House has voted to oust the Speaker. McCarthy's speakership was the third shortest in history and was plagued with GOP infighting. It's over. Kevin McCarthy has been ousted as Speaker. You all know Matt Gates. You know it was personal. It had nothing to do about spending. I don't regret standing up for choosing governing over grievance. 
It is my responsibility. It is my job. So Gates and seven other Republicans voted to oust McCarthy, and every Democrat present also voted with the rebel Republicans in favor of Gates's motion to oust McCarthy. And as you heard, really all the way up until the vote, McCarthy was expressing confidence that he was going to win. Upon completion of the vote, uh, Patrick McHenry became the speaker pro tempore. Uh, And so here we are. Scott, did you think it was going to happen this fast? No. And I was a former staffer from, uh, well, I guess if you count the internship, 04 to 2010. Um, and I saw some pretty crazy times with Tom DeLay and switching the house a couple of times during then. I worked um, for a Tea Party member out of Illinois for a little while. Um, I got out of Congress before all this stuff started, and I thought I had seen a lot of crazy stuff. Uh, but I always figured at the end of the day, usually these members, when they're faced you know, with going home or voting for something or a shutdown or voting for something or debt ceiling or voting for something, they usually coalesce. Um, and I think that's what McCarthy was counting on and just counted five votes short. Um, so yeah, no, I, I didn't think, it, I thought it was going to happen before the end of 24, but not before the end of 23. Mike. So here we are, uh, there's a handful of questions I want to get to, but first, what do you think this says about the state of the Republican conference? Do you think, do you think McCarthy actually thought he was going to win? Squeak this out. Uh, no. And I, I could tell you exactly why he, why I thought he knew he was going down. Uh, look, I'm 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 a California Republican, so I've seen Republican dysfunction up close in the legislature for 30 years, including when Kevin was the leader of the Republican Assembly here. The biggest sign that he was in deep, deep trouble to me was when he started casually walking around the rotunda and talking with reporters uh, to demonstrate calm and confidence. That is one of the last tactics you use to try to shut down the media, who's all the vultures are circling, the tom-tom drums are beating, they're coming for you, and you're in deep, deep trouble. The only thing you can do is kind of go out there and pretend like everything is okay. When I saw him doing that, I'm like, he's done. They don't have any control of the votes. They don't know where they're at. There's only It's not like a big fight of you know 50-50 here. You lose four or five votes and you're done. And I, I look. I, I, the biggest surprise to me was that Bobert didn't go up too. So clearly, they, they McCarthy's office did his work there. But it became like nailing Jello to a wall. Every time you like smack it here and try to put it in there and put this vote out, you got three other votes popping up somewhere else. So that he never had control of this caucus. He's exactly right in his assessment. Matt Gates was going to play this card at some point. It's why he did it. He's like, sure, I'll, I'll go up on the vote, but you're basically letting me determine when and how long this thing lasts. And he found his opportunity and he played it. And I think Gates, never thought I'd say this, but I think Gates play, played it masterfully. Uh. I think he's in for a long run now. I think he's so pissed off the caucus that there's going to be some massive internal fighting. And I think there's going to be a ton of leaks on Matt Gates's personal life as they try to destroy him and replace him. But look, look at what we're talking about. Heading into a year, uh, a year out of, of preserving and protecting this minority by a slim margin, we're talking about how much they're going to be destroying each other. Yeah. And that's not where you want to be at all. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of work to be done a uh, year out. They've got the money with McCarthy, but what does McCarthy do with all that money? My sense is he continues to you know spend it and protect house seats. But 
the, the operation you have to build, the confidence from the third house, the, 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 from the lobbying community to invest more money has been completely shaken to its core. And that's if they're able to put together another speaker in the next 72 hours and stabilize the ship of state here. And I don't, I'm not sure they can do it. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned Lauren Boebert when she voted. So I, I listened to the the roll call vote in real time, most of it. When they got to Boebert, she she said, uh, uh, no, for now. <laughs> that was her vote. Did she really? Yeah. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Everybody's giving up or down, yeah or nay. She said, no, for now. <laughs> but I want to talk about um well, I want to talk about Gates on two fronts for a minute. Um, but first on the substantive side, uh one of the reasons he and we can talk about the the personal reasons that he did this and the fundraising and whether whether or not it was all theater but watching the debate the back and forth as they dragged out this 30 minutes of of uh of reserved time every time they cut back to gates he was making uh well some of the arguments were bullshit but there were two that stood out to me that i found myself nodding along to that actually made a lot of sense and that I could understand why these guys are pissed off, even if you think they're they're clowns and their politics are bullshit. And those were the need for single-issue spending bills and how pissed off they are that they have to vote on, for example, education funding at the same time as border security or Ukraine aid. And they lump all this stuff, leadership loves all this stuff into big omnibus spending packages and you have to do an up or down vote. And he was also pissed off about the lack of time that they have to actually read the legislation that they're voting on. They get these huge packages and they're told to go to the floor and vote and they don't have enough time to actually know what they're voting on. And we saw we saw Nancy Pelosi give the famous example of this when they passed Obamacare in 2000, whatever it was. We got to pass the bill so we can find out what's in it. That's what she told all her members, right? So I wonder how, Scott, since you worked on the Hill, can you talk about First of all, your thoughts on the need for legislative reform, the way the procedural reform these guys are asking for and they're so pissed off about, and Kevin's inability to deliver on these promises that he made them during the during the initial fight to become speaker. Yeah, look, that I was kind of a rules nerd when I was in Congress, and it's it's funny the House has a very different set of rules than the Senate. In a lot of ways, the Senate rules are are way more um, complicated and, and dense. But the gist of it is is Congress and both houses make their own rules. And that's kind of what Kevin McCarthy agreed to, to become speaker. Um, you know, if you're watching that multi-vote process and the week leading up to it, he was giving them everything that they wanted. And one of the things they wanted was this motion to vacate. And so when I hear all these members say we need to reform that rule, it's like, okay, well, you've got this rule from reform last time. So, you know, this is this is kind of the House creating its own mess. And this is what Kevin McCarthy thought he had to give up um, to maintain his speakership or at least get that speakership. So I think that's that's good. I think it'll probably change in the future. But I think as a base set of rules, it's set up pretty well, right? Like if you're the majority party, um, you pick the speaker. If you're picked the speaker, you get to pick the rules on all the way down. And, you know, it's it all works back to you got to win these districts. Um, so you can have the most members in Congress. Um, that's a long way of me saying, I think it's okay. I just think, you know, if it, if you think it's bad now, it's like, well, this is what these guys voted in. So. Yeah, they did. I could, I was just, and, and our producer, we were having our editorial meeting yesterday. I was saying, you know what, actually, if, if I went to Congress or if you went to Congress and you were treated this way by your leadership and you knew that you were going to be forced to take these votes, you'd be pissed. Actually, because you have integrity 
And you want to read this legislation before you go to the floor and vote on it. And so you can go back to your constituents and say, I, I knew what I was doing when I voted. You would be really angry at leadership for the way that you are boxed in to these decisions. So that part of his like, you know, vitriol, I could understand. Now, on his part, I think it was all theater because even during the debate, even during this going down, he was sending text messages, fundraising text messages, getting people to like, so it's all gross. But uh, McCarthy had talked about this being a personal vendetta from Gates. And Mike, I wonder how much you think there is to that because he suggested it was payback for not running interference for him. Uh, Gates has, of course, been under an ethics investigation since 2021 uh, over allegations like engaging in sexual misconduct, illicit drug use, uh, misstated uh, identification records, misused state identification records, uh, converted campaign funds for personal use, accepting impermissible gifts under house rules, uh, among lots of other things. And this ethics committee's investigation was paused while the Justice Department carried out a related investigation. Um, and then they resumed once the Justice Department closed theirs. Uh, and on Sunday, Fox News reported that some of the House Republicans were preparing a motion to expel Gates from Congress if the Ethics Committee reports findings of guilt. So I wonder if you think this was like he saw the train coming down the tracks and had to create a diversion um, or how, how, how the fight between McCarthy and Gates got to this point. Look, this was a deeply personal act. And uh, there's no question in my mind that, that that's what was driving 100% of this. But let's, let's understand something. That's what politics is. I mean, you've got to manage that too. <laughs> if you want to be Speaker of the House, 90% of the job is babysitting. That's what it is. You've got to take care of and manage the personalities of your, of your caucus. And that's not an easy job, especially in an environment, and this is really the key takeaway, in a party that has lost its philosophical underpinnings. If there is no underlying governing philosophy that is keeping these members together, it all devolves into personal politics. It all devolves into personal spats. So people say, wow, it's amazing. Look at Nancy Pelosi. What a masterful job she did in managing her caucus. I think that's absolutely true. But she also had a decided advantage. Say what you will about the Democratic conference. There is still governing philosophy about the role and the size of government in that conference. You might think it needs to be very, very big, like the AOCs and the squad, or you may be a blue dog who has some very you know, strong kind of center-right leanings, but it's all on the normal spectrum about the size and scope of government. Once you have that, then you can deal. Then you mm-hmm. can cut deals. Then you can say, we'll, we'll, we'll add here, we'll subtract here, we'll give you this, we'll take away this. This is what we'll do. If you don't have that ability, what you have is the Republican conference, which is Lauren Boebert got busted in a the theater in Denver, <laughs> and how are we going to take care of her? And Marjorie Taylor Greene is going on to Steve Bannon's show, and she said this, and I don't know what that means. And we've got this ethic yeah, George Santos is, we don't know, you know, his lips are moving, so he's lying about something. And is he lying about lying? And what does that mean? And do we still have his vote? Because we've only got a four-vote you know, majority here. So, look, all of that is becomes a completely different calculation. But is, if the question, which it was, is, was this personal? There's no question this was personal. And that's why, in many ways, I don't believe Kevin McCarthy is an empathetic figure here. There's, there's, there's no sympathy for him. He knew the deal when he cut it. And so, on the intro, you, 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 know, you played a great piece of him complaining about it, mm-hmm. and he was going to play this card at some time. Yeah, well, you cut the deal. You wanted mm-hmm. to be speaker so bad that you were willing to give that up. What the hell did you think was going to happen? Mm-hmm. You said it yourself. You knew it was coming. Here it is. And, you know, 
You, you really embody, Kevin McCarthy embodies exactly what the Republican Party has become. He is the last of his kind, I think, as kind of an establishment Republican. And now we're just going to be, I think, trading between different clowns driving the car. It's, it's, I, there could be two or three more speakers before the next election cycle. I really believe that. One thing that's interesting is in your clip you had, I don't know who said in the floor speech, you know, that they were someone was fundraising off of legislative action, which is actually an ethics violation at minimum in the House. And maybe an if I have no idea, but I know that's not allowed. And it's funny when I was in Congress, the best members were the ones who could get something done and go back to the district and stand up on a stage and say, look at the hundred million dollars I got. Look at the, you know, look at whatever thing I got, right? It was the earmark era, right? And you could deal. There was not any of these things. There were a lot of people who didn't like Tom DeLay, but they were still voting for him for speaker. There were a lot of people who didn't necessarily like John Boehner, but they still voted for him for speaker because that was how Congress worked. It was about compromise and dealing. And you may want $100 million, so you get it, but you're going to have to vote for this, et cetera. And it was really starting with the um, John McCain border reform stuff in 2008, where you found that even earmarks couldn't overcome it. And that's the beginning of when these these members of Congress figured out is like, well, I could get reelected because I'm a good you know legislator because I get stuff done. I can say what bill I got co-sponsored or signed or what earmark I got, or I can go out and I can say stuff and I can say stuff and I can send out pieces of mail to go raise money. And I can use that money to get reelected instead of, you know, going to get a, a, a new bus station or, you know, as we've seen in the last five to 10 years, I can go out and send a text message or an email. And I think that's really what changed the dynamic. There is nothing more. What was interesting to me in the, the January speaker um, thing and now is there's nothing more Kevin could give. He said that he's like, I, I don't know. I've given them everything they wanted. There's nothing I can give. And I, I remember if this were 15 years ago. There's always an earmark you can give. There's always a co-sponsor. There's always floor time. There's always something you could have given. And you know what? He might have, Matt Gates said, I don't want any of that. I just don't want you, right? That's yeah. the different dynamic. And, yeah. you know, that's 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 interesting to me. And I don't know how that changes. I'm not saying earmarks are the greatest thing in the world, but, you know, they are in the Constitution. So anyone who says they're not constitutional it didn't read it. But it's one of those things, like, we, we have to change the dynamic if you want something different. Yeah, this whole this whole ethics problem just strikes me as uh, like as a futile exercise because, as you mentioned, Gates was indeed fundraising off the motion to vacate, off an official act, a very clear ethics violation. But the problem, Scott, is there's no negative consequences for ethics violations because the yeah. voters don't care. His yeah. constituency does not care. Yeah, and so if your voters don't care, what incentive is there for your caucus to punish you, especially yeah. with such a razor thin majority? Why, like. Yeah. So why does it even matter? And these guys have obviously figured out that it doesn't matter. And as a matter of fact, there's more to gain by, you know, fuck the ethics rules. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to do what looks good. I'm going to do what gets clicks and raises dollars because that's, you know, there's there, there's no downside here, right? And the more the more press that they generate by telling me that I'm, you know, violating ethics rules, well, that's that accrues to my benefit. This is the Donald Trump yeah. model, right? A little bit of data behind that, right? Like the reason why they're okay going against leadership is if you look at congressional approvals, look at YouGov, congressional approval across the whole is negative. We've known that. Congressional approval is 14. But if you look at it among just Republicans, just Republicans lines up with the national. Majority of Republicans don't like Congress. And it's not just the Democrats, the Republicans. And so I'm surprised no one has cited the data, but the average Republican voter, not even maybe the super in tune MAGA one or the super old school neocon, like they're just like, yeah, I don't like any of these guys. You know, there's not a lot of tear shedding over Kevin McCarthy among the average voter. Yeah. Mike, I want to look at the other side of the aisle here for a minute, because as we were talking about this shit show, 
it, it, it occurred to me that, well, actually what's getting overlooked here is that Democrats just worked with Kevin McCarthy to get a stopgap measure done until November to fund the government, to keep it open, and turned around and voted with the crazy caucus to support his ouster. All of them. And at first, like, that reads as deeply cynical to me on, on its face. But then at the same time, I have to wonder if there's some political savvy in it so that they can all sit back and watch the grotesque spectacle of the of the of the Republicans in disarray, try and figure out who's going to be their leader. How do you how do you read the way Democrats are playing this? I think they're playing it masterfully. And I, I'm I'm not that cynical. Look, their job is to be the loyal opposition here. Their job is to take it. It's very, very rare that the minority party has much influence or much sway in anything. And so when given the opportunity to take part in some of these bigger deals, there's no ideology underpinning that. You take what you can get, and that's what they did, and they should have. Like, I don't get this I, on social media, this, this grinching. Why didn't the Democrats save us? And damn the Democrats. Let me, let me punish Nancy Pelosi by taking her office because they didn't save us. And this problem solvers caucus is meaningless. It's just, it's so pathetically sad from the Republicans, but I, it doesn't surprise me. But uh, look, the, the Democrats, I think, have played this masterfully. They've got no obligation to save the Republicans from themselves. They have every incentive to try to extract something and, frankly, cause more disarray amongst the majority party because that prevents them from doing things that they oppose, from, 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 from moving legislation forward that they oppose. So that's first. But the second, and this is, this is really important. This is, a, this is a, as much as, as, as the Republicans are being tested in their leadership, so are the Democrats. And let me explain what I mean by that. There are going to be, and they won't be successful, but there are going to be conversations with a handful of Republicans that are going to be coming to the Democrats with increasing frequency to start talking about different governing structures and coalitions. Well, what if we voted for a Democrat? Well, what if you Democrats supported us? The Democrats won't do that. There's not going to be a Democratic Speaker of the House with a Republican majority, nor should there be. And the reason why is, of all the people that don't want that, it's the Democrats that don't want that. Okay? And the reason why Democrats don't want that is because you don't want to have a Democratic Speaker who's beholden to all the Republican votes. You don't want that. The best situation is to have a weak Republican speaker that has that that the Democrats have a significant sway in holding up and, and, and stabilizing and keeping in office. But even the chances of that, that's not sustainable. The third option, of course, is what's developing right now, which is a battle between a Steve Scalise and a Jim Jordan. Right. And which one of these guys is going to be able to put together a coalition of Republicans to hold in a better way than McCarthy could? And whether they can do that or not, I, we'll have to see. We'll see if that rule is still a requirement of keeping, uh, you know, this 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 resolution that any member at any time can bring in a, a call to vacate the chair. That's a very well, first of all, by the way, as I understand it, that has been the rule for most of the House's existence. I think it was Nancy Pelosi who changed that rule rule as as the institution started to change. And 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 the when we start talking about earmarks going away or omnibus spending, these are some of the tools that leadership has to use to extract some sort of discipline in these caucuses. 
is look, I, I love the idea of having to vote line by line on each spending item, but can, that is no way to run a, a government the size of the United States. Like there's just, it's, it's just, it, it, it's a micromanagement at a certain level that is just absurd. You can't run an economy with members of the house voting line by line on each spending bill. Like, first of all, that's not what they should be doing, or at least that's not the way they should be doing it because you're not going to be able to put together a majority on all these, all these budget items on some of them. You will, some of them you won't. And how do you, how do you develop a budget based off of that? I understand the underlying sentiment, but it's a broader statement about the erosion of leaders to control their caucuses. And we've talked a lot about this as we nationalize our politics as a Matt Gates or somebody on the left can go and raise money more from, from the average $5 donor nationally than going to the lobbying or special interest community and raising money that way. It's very hard for McCarthy to threaten a Matt Gates. Matt Gates may get stronger if he's expelled from the Congress. Mm-hmm. Think mm-hmm. about that. He mm-hmm. will become a martyr, and that's really problematic because then he's completely unshackled and will start tearing at you know 15 or 20 members that he's got a personal vendetta with with tens of millions of dollars and the capacity to raise even more. That's a bigger problem for, for, for McCarthy and for, for some of those leaders. So as we are as as technology is allowing us to devolve power, there's a very real threat that the House particularly becomes especially unwieldy as these tools to extract some discipline dissipate and vaporize and are no longer able to to cajole majorities to vote in a certain way. It's almost as if as the country gets more populous, so does the House of Representatives. Okay, Which so- it was designed to do, by the way. Right. Right. This is, yes. this is where the mob resides, right? From the Federalist Papers. This is put the mob yeah. in the House, and allow yeah. that to be unwieldy, and we'll create this better, more structured, stabilized Senate. But at some point, yeah, you've got to have. By the way, give them the power of the purse strings, give them some of the most yeah. important powers that exist. Yeah. And as, a, as a check, right? I mean, that's, right. that is important because you do have to cobble some sort of focus. It's also, look, it's not coincidence that the Speaker of the House is the third in line to be the president. Right. That's, even if it's as unwieldy, there's a, there's a very good reason for that, not the Senate. So right. this is a very elegant solution that the founders came up with. What's happening right now is not unforeseen. In fact, it was entirely foreseen. This is, I think, the founders in Philadelphia on that hot summer, you know, July when they're crafting this stuff, envisioned exactly this moment in American yeah. history and saying there's going to be there's going to be a place full of Matt Gateses, and we've got to protect the institution from that type of behavior and activity. That doesn't make it okay, yeah. but it makes it. You know, these ideas that this is somehow democracy falling apart is not true. Our norms have collapsed, and that's a danger to the institution. That's a separate question. But the way that the balance of powers is designed to work exactly envisioned the Matt Gates of the world not acting in the best interests of the country, but moving in the interests of their own faction. They're small, petty, vindictive, you know, personal, greedy self interest. Yeah. I I think. you're right. Democrats playing this the way they have is good for Democrats. I'm just not conf- convinced it's good for the country. I think it's good for Democrats, maybe not good for the country. Um, I, but, I, I'm giving up on those days from both yeah, parties. I mean, yeah. who, who's going to do something against their interest for the betterment of the right. country? Right. Yeah. I, I, you I mean, mean country over party? What's what, who, would, yeah. who would do something who like that? that? Right. Right. And it's both uh, parties. Let's be honest about it. Yeah, it's just yeah. that both parties are going to do yeah. what's in their own party's interest. Oh, yeah. Like long I'm, since uh, long since expect, done yeah, expecting. Yeah, they, the they convince themselves that their party is the one that is working in the best interest of America on everything right. that they do. On, 
On everything, right? On everything. There's nothing that either party does that is not in the best interest of America, <laughs> which is how they rationalize really bullshit behavior. Right. Okay. Before we leave this topic, though, one other thing that has been floating around uh, the Twitter versus on Tuesday night, Sean Hannity floated that Trump may consider running for speaker. On Wednesday afternoon, Trump then posted an image of himself uh, on Truth Social. We, he truthed an image of himself <laughs> hold, holding a gavel in the House. Uh, two House members, Majority Leader Steve Scalise and Jim Jordan, have started running for speaker. Um, put odds on this, both of you, that's, that, that we end up with some serious attempt uh, to install Trump as Speaker of the House. Scott? Uh, I mean, if the threshold is, is he going to be at least nominated one round? Yeah, I think he'll probably be nominated one round. I, I don't see him getting to 218, but you know, crazier stuff happened this week. So. If he's nominated, <laughs> how do they all vote against him? Right. That's the problem. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, just like there are five people who, you know, numbers be damned, I'm never voting for Kevin McCarthy. There's probably, you know, five to 10 Republicans who don't, who don't care. I'm not going to name them, but I could probably think of five or 10 um, who push come to shove. They're like, yeah, you know, go ahead and primary me. Um, but, you know, I, I think this gets more interesting if it goes five, 10, 15 rounds or a couple of weeks yeah. or something like that. Yeah. I think the, the one scenario that I've been thinking through and some other, it's like, you know, if you don't get 218, how long is, you know, uh, McHenry protest, yeah. you know? He's a, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's going to be there for a while. I think he's going to get comfortable. Yeah. This is not, I don't and, think and this goes quickly. How does this play with a debt deal and 45? I mean, part of the reasons why they wanted 45 days is because they're like, okay, well maybe we can pass some of these individual spending bills. I mean, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, let me put it this way. I don't know enough about the house rules, but I know that under you know, the pro temp speaker, there's not everything works. Like they're just a mess. So like they, they right. had a type time frame when they had a leadership in place. There's not a leadership in place. So the timeline is, is, is probably even worse. And, and obviously the, the Trump stuff, I, I it's, it is going to be a long week next week that might extend to a long month. Yeah. Okay. Mike odds quickly. I think it's about a twenty five percent chance. I do. I do. It's not. It's not negligible. It's, it's not a possibility. It's twenty, and, and it's a, it's a real chance. I, I don't think like it's a, it's likely, but it is very it is very possible. I think it depends on how desperate he is in this court and in these well, in these multiple and, court proceedings. And the Republicans, if it gets yeah. so dysfunctional that they can't yeah. put it together, he does yeah. come in as the savior. And remember, he doesn't have to be a member of the House. Obviously, right. he also doesn't have to show up beyond you know just smacking down the gavel making a spectacle of the fact that it happened. And then he can go back to court and have whoever he wants, maybe Kevin McCarthy, you know, run the, run the floor. I mean, you, you can, there's, there's the, the rules you set up as a speaker, as, as Scott just said, I mean, the most, there's one really, really important vote in, 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 in every house. And it's bigger than any other vote. And that's the organizational you know vote of who's the speaker that, yeah. that dictates everything. That's all the everything. rules of how this is going to yeah. run. So there's yeah. a lot of ways that this can be done. Let's get to RFK Jr. Uh, and presidential politics. Last week, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. hinted that his campaign will make a major announcement next week. It's widely believed that he's planning to announce a third-party presidential run, an independent presidential run. Some Democrats have watched Kennedy very nervously since he launched his campaign in April, and they fear that a third-party candidacy could siphon off votes from Biden and ultimately help Trump. 
In the late spring, some polls had Kennedy with up to 20% of Democratic support. His average is now sitting at about 16 in the Democratic primary. Uh, but we've talked a lot on the show about the potential of a third-party run, namely in no-labels efforts uh, that could help pave the way for Trump to retake the Oval Office. So, Scott, we haven't talked to you about it yet. Um, and there's a lot of data now floating around, and it doesn't all point in the same direction. So can you help us walk through this uh, based on the data you've seen, um, whether it's public or private, who would benefit most from a Kennedy third-party run? Who would it hurt? And we probably need to think about this in terms of whether or not there is a no-label separate uh, independent ticket on the ballot, right? Add a variable. Yeah, you got to yeah. add a variable. So I guess it's one of those things like RFK is interesting and it's a hard subject to pull, right? Just because he's got such a great name and so aligned with Democrats. So when you just put his name out there in a in a general election survey, um, you know, in any state, whether it be nationwide or state based, he is going to get I mean, we saw this during some of the early, you know, when he started running, he's going to get between five and 15 percent of Democrats saying, sure. He's a Kennedy. I, I'm going to go ahead and and check him, check the box next to him, especially since he's not Biden. But I'm a Democrat and Kennedy's are Democrats, so I'm going to vote. It's a little bit of partisan politics. Um, and Republicans have the same thing, too. And so there's that. Uh, what what the private polling I've seen is, is obviously if you start informing voters and how you inform them to a poll is always, you know, debatable. Um, you know, some of these Democratic voters are like, oh, OK, well, he's, he's not he's not the Kennedy I remember or the Kennedy I thought I was going to voting for whatever his position is. So I'm going to go ahead and vote for the other the other guy. And so I think where the Democrats are very worried about him taking away from Biden is they're going to have to spend money to educate normally solid Democratic voters that, yeah, this is not this is not an alternative to Biden. This is, you know, they're probably going to paint him as a Republican. And that's where, you know, he, he might hurt from Trump is when you do start listening to him, he says some things that Republican voters, and, you know, Steve Bannon on his podcast are like, oh, well, this guy's great. Let's go ahead and vote for him. And so I think that's where the Republicans have to worry about is, is, you know, there are some, you know, he is saying some things that are not necessarily aligned with Trump, but are aligned with some of the more um, conservative wing of the Republican Party and, you know, might soft, siphon off some voters. Um, and, and then I guess it all kind of filters where it in, you know. If he steals voters from Biden or Trump in California, he ain't going to decide California. So it doesn't matter who he helps or hurts. We can debate that all day long, but he's not going to pull enough to flip California for either candidate or New York. Um, I, I don't think it's a Florida one either. I, I, where it becomes interesting is in states like Pennsylvania that were separated by 50,000 votes or, you know, Michigan or Wisconsin that were tens of thousands of votes. And so, I, you know, I haven't seen any state based polls there with RFK in it. I'm sure there will be some coming up. Um, and taking a look at it. But, you know, I, there, there's arguments that he can help or hurt both sides. And it, it, it really is up to both sides how they want to play it. Democrats know that if they educate voters on RFK, they will maintain their voter base. Republicans know that if they don't differentiate themselves from this, he might take votes from their candidates. So it's it kind of goes both ways. At the end of the day, I think where RFK is going to go is the, the way of most Green Party and third party candidates. He's probably his high watermark polling is probably going to be between now and maybe June or July of next year. And then all of a sudden, when the votes really come down to it, he's going to be in the the Ralph Nader range. Um, and no, I don't think Ralph Nader, you know, stole it from, from, uh, <laughs> uh, I'm drawing a blank in 2000. That wasn't the difference maker there. 
Yeah. Yeah, but 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 in 2016, Jill Stein and Gary Johnson, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, absolutely did make up the difference between Hillary winning those states, right? Uh, well, Wisconsin was 120,000 votes. I believe those two combined got less than 120. 77,000. Yeah. So, across yeah, three no, states. Yeah. yeah. Now, if they had gotten 77, that might have been within automatic recount range. But no, that wasn't going to flip Wisconsin. Um, Michigan was a little bit different um, in Pennsylvania, but they needed to win them all. So, I mean, it makes it close. I, don't get me wrong. Yeah. I mean, tens and of thousands it, of votes yeah. across 140 million votes. I mean, we're talking small here, but it's not, yeah. it's not the difference. And then what happens when you introduce the no labels bid and assuming in that ticket, there's a Republican and a Democrat in it, which they have promised. Yeah, no, I, that one's the most interesting to me in the sense that, you know, I mean, I've, I've read all the drama around it. I'm, I'm sure you guys have talked about it. I'm sure we'll have a beer at some point and talk about it, but like, (laughs) let's put a, put put a, put all the drama aside. They're going to raise money. And they're going to spend money. Yeah. And, and you know, Larry Hogan, um, who full disclosure for, I worked on his campaign in 2018. I like the governor. I like the guy. I mean, he's a, he's a serious candidate. Do I think he's going to get, you know, 218, you know, 250 electoral votes? No. Do I think he can win Maryland? Probably not. But, um, and I don't think Joe Manchin can win West Virginia either, but they are serious candidates who can go on television, who can raise money. And I don't think they're going to get, they're going to get if many, if any electoral votes, but they can certainly win votes. Right. They are they are tier one politicians, not enough to win the presidential, but enough to actually be serious candidates and win votes and certainly raise and spend money. Yeah. And no labels has a hell of a lot more money than RFK does at this point. I think they've got yeah. 70 million dollars in the bank, which just for, you know, take a trip down memory lane at the beginning of the 2015 primary. I think Jeb Bush, who was then the odds on favorite at the yeah. time, had 70 yeah. million dollars in a super PAC. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's I mean, why. Look, it, and let's look at the last time there was a third party candidate, Ross Perot. I mean, the reason why that guy was serious wasn't, I mean, he was, he was pretty charismatic for the time. People spent real money on this, right? Yeah. Like, you know, RFK yeah. might have a super pack of $10 million. You know, that's not enough to make a difference. It's a lot of money, but not a lot of money. That's where I think no labels, you know, say what you will about their drama. They're get they're getting ballot lines. They've got, they've proven that they can raise money that, you know, Joe Manchin and, and Larry Hogan are tier one candidates. I, I don't think they're going to win, but I think they're going to, you know, they yeah. can win votes. Yeah. So, Mike, I think Scott just pointed something out that's important for us to underscore for listeners, which is the difference between name ID, which Kennedy has in spades, and definition, which hasn't really been done yet. And that's why he's peeling so much off of Trump at this point. How do you think the Biden campaign what is the what is what's the role for the DNC in this race, and how should the Biden campaign be talking about or thinking about defining Kennedy? Look, my biggest worry about Kennedy right now is like what's happening in New Hampshire. It could be, and the reason why is because what it, what what is happening in New Hampshire is the president is deciding to kind of skip New Hampshire because of these new rules that the DNC put into place. So you're going to have a very aggressive, very involved Republican primary, and then Biden's name will not be on the ballot. Uh, but Marianne Williamson's will be, and RFK's could be as well. And even if these, you remember, you know, we're not West, time, by the way. Sorry, we're not West. We're not yeah, West. We're not counting out either. Yeah, there's going to be other Democrats' name on the ballot, and Biden's not. Uh, there's also this nascent efforts to kind of try to convince Democrats to vote in the Republican primary. All of these lower Biden's vote totals, and if it looks like Biden's weak in New Hampshire, even though it's not a particularly good gauge. Uh, that starts a news cycle that starts to feed this this kind of hysteria about this. 
Look, let's step back a little bit, though. I, I think it's important to understand that what we are seeing, at least in my estimation, is this growing effort, not just by individual kind of kooky individual people like RFK and others. You're starting to see moneyed interests like backing no labels that are trying to break through this duopoly, as they call it, right? This two-party system. At some point, it's going to give, and it's not going to give cleanly with in one way, in one fell swoop. It's going to happen with a drip, drip, drip over a number of cycles. And I would say that because it's been happening. Again, as, as, as somebody who remembers the 1992 cycle and remembers Ross Perot, you know, Ross Perot could have been a lot stronger, but he was just, he was kooky. He pulled out of the race. He had a ton of money, but he pulled out of the race before he jumped back in. He was a horrible candidate on the stump. But you have to remember, like, people did not like Bill Clinton and they did not like George H.W. Bush. Very similar to what we're seeing right now. These are, and that increasingly, as we polarize, as Tranter was saying earlier about the negatives in Congress, people don't like their own parties anymore. Okay. And, and that environment creates a vacuum. And in that vacuum, something is going to fill it at some point in time. It may be one candidate, it may be what we're seeing now an RFK independent candidacy and a no labels candidacy. But it is chipping away at the two party system. And one of the things that I really resent is the fact that both parties still say, you've got to vote for us Ugh, you're just a danger or you're a threat and you know we yeah. don't want to have another candidate on the ballot i hear from strategists all the time especially democrats saying oh no well that you know that if you put up a republican it takes away votes that would swing to joe biden it's like this threat this gun holding to the voter's head that's not sustainable at a certain no. point if you're not able to win a multi-candidate field you're it's not going to win it's anti-democratic it's anti-democratic and remember the electoral college was set up for multi-candidate field it wasn't set up for republican and democratic party okay it wasn't that emanated that developed but the 270 map the the electoral college that whole concept was designed specifically for scenarios where there were more than two candidates that's why it was created you had to show depth. You had you were really running to get a plurality, not a majority of of the votes. And so, again, I'm not saying that the founders had it right or wrong. I'm saying that's why it was set up, whether they were right or wrong. And and at a certain point, I think the two party system is showing institutionally it 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 doesn't have the confidence of the American electorate anymore, and it is eroding internally. And I think that the data point that Scott just pointed out a few second, a few minutes ago about Republicans not liking their own party is, is a testament to that. It's also a testament to look at Biden's weaknesses. Biden's weaknesses are not as bad with independents as they are with young Democrats. They really don't like this guy. Yeah. Like they don't, they, will yeah. they show up and vote for him? Yeah, if a gun is held to their head. But at a certain point, that's not healthy for democracy either. When, 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 when all of these voters are voting for the least, you know, bad or the you know the, the lesser of two evils that is not healthy for democracy it's not healthy for civic engagement and that is precisely where we're at i come okay i wholeheartedly agree with you on all of that and now i want to try and offer some thoughts on what would be healthy for democracy and i want to do this let so just take for example these independent candidates rfk jr then we have then we have Marianne Williamson and Cornell West running as Democrats, and you have the Republican primary shit show, and most of these guys can't get on a stage because they won't pledge fealty to Donald Trump should he be the eventual nominee, which he will be, right? They're, what I'm, what would be healthy for democracy and not to say, like, 
we've we've talked about Biden is acting rationally as an incumbent in the president by not debating and not acknowledging these other candidates and also not acknowledging that a majority of his party doesn't want him to run again. What would be healthy for a democracy that is experiencing this pressure from outside both parties, from within both parties, if they are not satisfied with the leadership and the system is presenting more options that are just hurling at the system, trying to break it down, what should the system, what, how should they manage this? Because if it isn't healthy, and I don't mean like what is in their political interest, I mean, what would be the healthy uh, adjustment to the system? What should we be looking at? Because I personally, I know he's doing the right thing in terms of his politics, but I would love to see Biden on a stage with the other Democratic candidates. I would yeah. love that. Yeah, but I mean, the, the Trump's doing the same thing, right? It's tactically, yeah. if you're if you're if you're going to win of the course. nomination, you don't you don't go and debate and lower yourself to it. I get that, and yeah, it's frustrating, but it is. I get it. It is what it is. Let, let me say this: I, I think that what one of the big problems that we've gotten into is we keep thinking that it's a process structural problem. And it's why, like, I just kind of roll my eyes when I hear, oh, it's ranked choice voting. Oh, it's open primaries. Oh, it's whatever. It's like, maybe, but you're putting Band-Aid on like a, a massive wound on the body here. Politics is downstream from culture. What is happening here is happening not because of the process and the structure of our political system. It's just quantifiably not. If that if it were the case, then why wasn't this happening 20 years ago or 30 years ago or 50 years ago or 100 years ago? It's because something has changed in us as a people. And so I, I think, look, if, if you want to really get back to kind of basics and some of the real fundamental questions of democracy and if it works, we've got documents and we've got this, this, these, this, this structure from these old white dudes in Philadelphia in the late 1700s who've already done the debates and laid this out and kept a good record of it. The way that they originally envisioned this happening was not the way that it has manifested. And again, I'm not saying that they're right, but what I'm saying is we're probably wrong, right? So at some point, we've got to go back and say, maybe the parties, which have, by the way, calcified and structurally institutionalized themselves into the yes. DNA of yes. the states, makes it impossible to have a debate outside of them. And I'm not arguing for multi-parties or, any, or anything like that. What I'm arguing is for... A debate of ideas. I don't care if there's parties or not, but there needs to be some other choices because right now what we are dealing with it quantifiably does not work. And it's also going to get far worse before it gets better if we don't break down the systems. It's just, it's just the way it is. And that doesn't mean, look, I would also argue that, that something like a forward party, which is, doesn't have a, a philosophy or an idea under it is far more dangerous than the Republicans or Democrats. That they're like the the Ford Party is like the Matt Gates of of of, pol of political parties because it, it's not standing for anything. It's literally not defining itself by anything. That is a natural emanation of a completely broken system. Parties should be built on ideas, and they are not right now. They are they are built exclusively on interest, and and those there's a, a natural convergence. But without a philosophy of governance, re Republicans used to want smaller government, free markets, you know, balanced budget, a balanced budget. They're, they're, that was a philosophy of government. If we have a smaller government, we're going to have a healthier society. Democrats believe the opposite. That's a fair discussion, a good debate to have. It stabilized us for the last couple of centuries. Doesn't work anymore. 
and we can get into why those parties don't work anymore. But what I am convinced of is parties should be about philosophies, not the details, not, 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 not principles, principles, principles that guide the way you believe our government should be heading. And then let the politicians do what they're supposed to do with that guiding philosophy. That's the way representative government is supposed to work. That's what the founders created. That's what they designed. That is not what we're doing right now. That is definitely not what we're doing right now. Scott, what would you like to see? Um, you know, we it, it's, it is interesting to me that, you know, my favorite stat about Congress is anywhere between 90 and 95% of Congress stays the same every two years. Um, I'm talking just about the House. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of talk about term limits. There's a lot of talk about um, those types of things. It's interesting. Both parties, the Republicans are the first one to do it. They institute term limits, but they basically said, guess what? You only can be a committee chair for so long. Democrats haven't done that yet. And the reason why the Republicans did that is they wanted to force some some churn at the committee level. And you're seeing that some of these members who reach committee chair level, they're like, all right, well, I can't be a committee chair for another 10 years, so I'm going to retire. That's like, um, uh, that is redistricting light or term limit light. Um, I, I tend to agree with Mike. A lot of these small things we're talking about, um, you know, they're, they're minor tweaks to the system. I don't necessarily think they're going to have any immediate change, but I think there's going to be some long-term stuff there. Um, but, you know, the question is, is can we wait another 10, 15 years to, to kind of to go back to normalcy um, or what we perceive to be normalcy? I, I don't really have an answer to it other than at least as far as I've been looking, I've been looking at this stuff pretty closely for 20 years, either in it or around it. And it is in the last 20 years, it has markedly changed a lot. Um, and so my hope is it can markedly change a lot over the next 20 years, just as quick as we got here, it, it flipped around. Um, but I, I, I think I go back to my one big thing is the fundraising off of legislative action, you know, from your clip mm. earlier, like that to me. You know, Madison Cawthorn said it great. He's like, I don't need any policy staffers. I just need all the comp staffers in the world. Now, mm. he got kicked out of Congress for a different reason. But like, I, I mean, that was one of the truest statements. He's not wrong. You know, Lauren Bover, mm. Mar- Mar- Marjorie Taylor Greene, like they don't need, they are some of the most widely known and quote unquote effective policy movers in Congress, not because they're the smartest people in the room. Right. Like, and, and, yeah. and I think that needs to change quite a bit. That dynamic needs to change. I wonder if that dynamic is weakening the strategy of not acknowledging your political opponents in a primary that Biden is doing. Because it used to be that you didn't give them oxygen, you didn't give them, you didn't give them coverage, you didn't give the media a reason to cover them. But now, because we're all so connected and information flows a lot more quickly to a lot more hands instantaneously, there are far more avenues for them to get exposure. And by not acknowledging them and by not having this far more democratic process in, in culture, maybe not in structure, but in acknowledging that, there's, that there are other ideas that would like to, uh, that would like to express themselves, uh, and maybe the president could incorporate some of those into his, into his uh, campaign. And, and his agenda. I think, I wonder uh, if this is just amplifying the anti-institutional, anti-media sentiment because these guys are going to go elsewhere to get heard. And there's an appetite for it because people are pissed off at leadership. They'll go on the podcast circuit. We know they are. They will, they will find a direct route to the, to the, to the, to the, to the people who want to hear from them. And I think that increasingly in this media environment, in the way that it moves, in the way that it works, 
that actually might not be the best strategy anymore. I don't know, but it certainly is feeding suspicion and frustration at the people who are in power. I, I don't know. I don't know what the right answer is, but I. But, yeah. Let me say this to, you, to your point. One of the most fascinating characters on the scene at this point in time to me in the Republican primary is, is Vivek Ramaswamy. And let me, let me tell you why. The reason why he has developed some sort of relevance is because he has purchased capacity. He has purchased and built up enough social media following that that's what's making him relevant. It's not even what he's saying. It's not what he's doing. He's built up his own communications channels around the, the normal way of getting information. And if, you've, if you're rich, if you're personally wealthy like that, that's the way you do it now, kind of to your point. Is it good? Is it bad? I, I, I don't know. I don't think it's particularly good because the guy's a nutbag. But he's he's got the capacity to do it, and he's got staying power because of it, and it's why he's been as relevant as he has. Is he's he's got as big a megaphone as anybody else in that in that primary because he was able to purchase it. So I, I just I, I we are at a point in time where even if you don't go through the traditional means like having a Biden debate somebody in his own party, you can still get relevant simply by by buying the infrastructure. It's not even it's not even like you used to be really good at doing earned media, as we used to call it in the or still call it. It's just very hard to get nowadays because the the, the 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 media has shrunk so much and coverage of politics is almost nil. But but even getting some you know press conferences and coverage like that through the old traditional way, it's not nearly as impactful as simply having a large X following, Twitter following, a large Facebook following, a large Instagram following. Like that's the way that it's done now. And unfortunately, that can be purchased. Uh, that, and that's, that's why he's got the staying power that he does is no matter what he says or what he does uh, or, or how stupid he sounds, it just magnifies and amplifies the capacity that he's already purchased. And that's why he can stay in it as long as he wants to and he'll be relevant and have a voice. Let's talk about what we're watching. God, there's so much to choose from. You guys are probably going to bring top line headlines. Mike, what do you bring? Well, I mean, look, uh, there has been so much, but politically, a hurricane hit California. You know, we lost, we lost a great Californian in Diane Feinstein. No matter how you look at it, and obviously she was there far too long, but but it is what it was. So we lost a great senator within 72 hours. We gained a, a, a new senator who's the first black lesbian. You know, she's the head of, the, of, of Emily's List, the women's rights organization. She was the, 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 the leader of SEIU 1000. If you're not in California, I can't tell you how powerful SEIU 1000 is. They're basically a member of the legislature. They're, they're so incredibly powerful as an interest group. And so no, knowing that it was LaFonso Butler who got this, obviously it's just a lot of Sacramento insiders, but it makes perfect sense. Um, she's going to be very strong running in this primary. Uh, she's going to run? Be, oh, for sure. I mean, why? Because why, remember, we've talked about this primary, Adam Schiff, Kate, you know, yeah, like. Yeah, but now you're going to have a, 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 a black lesbian abortion rights activist who headed up the strongest, most powerful union in the state who uh, is going to have uh, running her ballot designation is going to be U.S. Senator. Uh, under the Democratic Party. Like you can't, I don't know how much more institutionally you can get stronger 
Um, so, so that, that, you know, changes a lot and to look, to see her unseated for a white woman and Katie Porter or a white man and Adam Schiff. I mean, that would be so incredibly telling of the, of the democratic primary. One of my, one of my criticisms of, of, of white progressives too, by the way, is, mm-hmm. is if they were to, uh, if they were to, to toss a woman like that out, I think would be extraordinary. Wouldn't be terribly shocked or surprised. I think I'd just be embarrassed for them, but it's possible and then, of course, Kevin McCarthy, our speaker, you know, um, loses. And, and remember, earlier this this year, we lost another California speaker under Nancy Pelosi. Mm-hmm. So what, the, the the changing in California's power structure has been <sighs> enormous this year, um, and it's just a it's it's as a Californian, there's it's just generational change. Things that we thought would always be no longer are, largely because of what has happened in the last four or five days. Yeah. What'd you bring, Scott? Uh, you know what? I, I'm, I'm always about the numbers and we always talk about the economy and it's just looking at where it's going to be a year from now. Right. So if you look at, um, you know, home, home affordability is theoretically, you know, at the highest point it's been, um, since I don't know, right before 2008, maybe ever, um, you look at where interest rates are, um, and, you know, and unemployment's still very good. There are aspects of the economy that you're like, okay, it's really good. And then there are aspects of the economy that there are, there are looming problems. Now, when we were having the discussion, we should pull the tapes. You know, last time I was on here, we were like, okay, well, maybe this fall, we're going to start seeing unemployment drop and things like that. So, so we, were, we were wrong there, but I, I still feel like there's a shoe to drop. And I think you see that with what Joe Biden's doing with, you know, he just did a little more student loan relief this week. Um, you know, he's trying to rename it the Biden, Bidenomics, Biden economy. I'm not necessarily sure that's a good or a bad thing, but he's certainly trying to own it. I, I mean, the economy does play into elections and we are, you know, I, I'm looking a little bit past the primary. I'm trying to figure out where we're going to be on October 5th, 2024, because that's what will be on people's minds. If we are looking at an economy like it was in 09 or 2010, I think it looks pretty bad for Biden. So that means if interest rates are still up a year from now, Home affordability's down. You got Donald Trump, who you know looks like he'll be the Republican nominee, saying, you know, remember how good it was under me. Um, you know, bring me back. I'll give everyone free stuff. Um, you know, whatever he's going to say to take advantage of it. Like, I think that's that's what I'm looking at is all these these economic stories coming out about what the Fed's doing, unemployment, student loans, um, and you can see these campaigns reacting to it. You know, combined with the fact, yeah. I, I was very surprised. Nikki Haley brought up balanced budgets. And she got a lot of headlines for it. Like that was that was a pretty smart play in the Republican re, re, Republican debate, and that is now we're we're talking about that again. You know that she has yeah. made that her issue. So if we still can't fund the government in forty five days, and that you know Ukraine spending all these types of things, she's going to look pretty smart. You know, next spring saying, "Hey, I was the one who brought this up." So it's yeah. the economy is is still my what I've been tracking. It's a good point. Uh, okay, I've got two things today. Um, one's 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 a little long. One's a little. One's quick. Uh, first up, I want to draw attention to something that's kind of urgent, which is this um, insidious little bill in the Senate being pushed by uh, Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois and and uh, and Roger Marshall of Kansas, uh, which they have deceptively named the Credit Card Competition Act. And the bottom line is that these big box retailers like um, Walmart and Target and, oh, yeah, Walgreens, which is headquartered in Dick Durbin's home state of Illinois, are attempting this legislative money grab by taking away your credit card rewards and points, marginally boosting their profits. So what this bill actually does, and Mike knows I love credit card points, is 
force the credit card companies to offer their services to these merchants, these big businesses, for essentially free, letting the likes of Walmart off the hook for paying the competitive 2% fee that, for example, Visa and MasterCard charge. These credit card companies take nearly every penny of that 2% fee that they make from the, from the merchants, and they reinvest it back into their programs, their perks and benefits for their customers, their cardholders, essentially you. So if Durbin and Marshall get this through, it would eliminate not just your points and miles programs and bonuses, but your cashback rewards, uh, benefits like purchase protection, travel insurance, car rental protection, all, all of the ways that credit cards currently compete to attract customers and save you money, all of that gone. On top of that, it would result in far worse security and fraud prevention measures because those programs those programs are also funded by the same 2% fee that credit cards charge to merchants. That's how they make their money. That's how they make, they make these cards competitive. The worst part of this is that they know better because back during Dodd-Frank in 2009, Durbin passed an amendment to that bill that did the same thing to debit cards, which banks used to offer perks for, like free checking accounts with no minimum balances, no overdraft fees. It made it far more uh, affordable to bank and there was no predatory fee structures. After Durbin's amendment, these banks had to make up the revenue and started charging all kinds of fees for banking services and even closed down lots of branches in economically challenged areas, which created banking deserts where poor communities can't even access critical banking infrastructure. They just, they just up and went away. So this is a great example of how politicians will give a piece of legislation a name that implies the opposite of what it actually does in order to make it sound popular and squeak it through before you can figure out what's, what's, what's in it. So um, hat tip to Spencer Howard at Straight to the Points for bringing this to my attention. Uh, if you care about this, you want to learn more, handsoffmyrewards.com, uh, and you can contact your, your, uh, your legislators uh, and tell them you don't want them to do this. Um, the other thing is, uh, Mike, I think we might have talked about this couple weeks back when you were on, and I think I made a mistake by waving away the arguments under the 14th Amendment, Section 3, that might disqualify Trump from holding office. I have now listened to five hours of the authors of the 126 or so page law review article, both of whom are originalists, both of whom are conservative uh, law professors, discuss this with uh, both Akhil Amar liberal law professor at Yale, also an originalist, and Sarah Isger, David French at The Dispatch, all, all brilliant legal minds who I have a lot of respect for. And I've listened to their arguments go link by link in the logic chain. And I am now convinced not only does it have legs, but at some point it's going to have to be decided. And I don't want to get into all the details right now, but I, I think it could, if it's not dealt with now, soon in the courts, we could end up with a January 6th, 2025 that will make the first one look like a warm-up. It's really concerning. So you can expect more content on this coming soon as we, as we, as we build some podcast episodes around it. But um, we can have an offline chat about this. Uh, it's, uh, it, there's something to it. There's a lot to it, actually. Um, and then I listened to the criticism of that argument um, by the most well-respected person who countered it. And I was hoping for something that would say, oh, yeah, okay, this is, of course, why. He essentially doesn't take on the most serious parts of this argument because they would be uh, too uncomfortable to deal with. It's kind of like, 
Well, that can't be the law because that would be really bad. But if you follow the law where it goes, it looks like this is a self-enforcing provision of the Constitution that is still valid. Uh, sorry, it's a yeah, it's a it's a it's a self-executing provision of the Constitution that's still so valid. So, just for clarification, you're saying that yeah. you you're now more convinced that the legal arguments for not putting Trump on the ballot are are sound. I'm uh, correct for him being disqualified mm-hmm. to hold the office, and the recourse for that would be any elections official around the country who is who has the authority to decide whether or not someone goes on a ballot. So, a local elections clerk can deny that the, the 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 best way for this to be decided would be for a local elections clerk to deny uh, Trump's candidacy on a ballot in a state and then for that to be immediately appealed all the way up to the highest courts in the I, land which will happen right decision, that's going to happen which will happen yeah. which will happen and also in Minnesota for example any person uh, under Minnesota's constitution they have this uh, special provision where you can bring a petition of sorts uh, to directly to the Supreme Court challenging the candidate challenging the eligibility of anybody on the ballot. So that that's also another way that this could get decided. The problem is if this doesn't get decided in the courts by then, then you end up with Congress having to deal with it. Yeah. And this could be especially if Democrats control Congress on January 6, 2020, like it, this could just be Messy. an absolute yeah. clusterfuck. Yeah. So yes, I'm convinced the arguments are quite sound and need to be uh, litigated at the highest level. I, so I gotta, the Supreme Court needs to decide, so you're saying. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, yeah. I haven't followed that as closely as you have, but at the end of the day, it's going to end up at the Supreme Court, correct? Yeah. It, it needs to. If yeah. they, they Remember, they have to agree to take it. Well, so then and, you, you're, put the legal arguments aside. Let me posit something yeah. for you. I think the Supreme Court, A, won't take it, or B, they're just going to go with the status quo. Right. Which and the is, problem let is him that, on the ballot. Right. That right. would be my kind uh, of argument to why I'm not necessarily worried about it. And that's from someone who hasn't, who spent maybe one-tenth of one percent of the time reading the legal arguments. It's, it's a political <laughs> yeah. take. It's, uh, you know, as long as it ends up at the Supreme Court and they have one of two options, they can rule on it or not take it. If they not take it, then the default is he stays on the ballot. And if they rule on it, then he could stay on the ballot or not. I think at the end of the day, Two of the three outcomes here, he stays on the ballot. Odds are he's going to get two of the, one of those two or three outcomes. I think that's probably right. I think that's probably right. Um, but it's not clear. There's a, there's a non-zero chance this leads to. Oh yeah, very, yeah, surely turmoil and all that. Violent. Yeah, yeah, Because yeah. you know that's yeah. that's me just discounting the legal argument here. I mean, do you think you know, there, do you think there's a do you, is there a scenario that you envision where the Supreme Court uh, prevents Trump from being on the ballot? Yes. Okay. If they this is why these are these are very well uh researched originalist arguments that they are making. You think like a textualist Alito? Yeah. Really? That's what I mean. They're speaking their language and Can I be on the I podcast can, with George Conway when you talk about this? <laughs> <laughs> we 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 will be yeah, we will be working on something soon. So that's uh, fascinating. And in the meantime, yeah. listeners, if you really want to take a deep dive into this, I would encourage you to anybody who who, you know, has the has the patience for um for detailed legal conversation, uh Akil Amar's podcast is and he's been on the show before. Um brilliant brilliant Legal Minds uh, is called America's Constitution. We'll put a link to those two episodes in the show notes. And then on advisory opinion, Sarah and David 
uh, interviewed one of the authors recently and pushed back on some some of the arguments. And um, uh, you can hear for yourself um, what what they are. So uh, we'll put links to these in the show notes. You can learn more. Um, and that's all I got today. Stop! Stop! Stop the Durban bill. Get it done. <laughs> All right, gang, uh, before we flip over to Politicology Plus, where we'll talk about the rise in organized labor, where can everybody find you on the internet these days, Scott? Uh, I, I've been reading a lot more Twitter, posting less, but I'm on Twitter at S-Tranter. Okay. I guess it's X now. I'm sorry. I, I can not to call it Twitter. Yeah. yeah, It's X. We don't know what the verb is yet, though. Yeah, so. yeah true. <laughs> Mike's on X and a lot of other places. You can find me on X at Madrid underscore Mike. Uh, you can find me on threads at Mike, M-Y-K-E, Madrid. Uh, I'm on Mastodon. You, you find me. We look for you'll me. Find, find yeah. me. Yeah. <laughs> look for me. Come look for me. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening today. If you have questions about anything we discussed today, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. Whether it's an episode idea, a topic recommendation, or just a simple note about what you thought, we love to hear from you, and we might even use it on an upcoming episode. Also, if you can head over to the Apple Podcast app and rate us five stars and leave a review there, we'd really appreciate it. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. I'm Ron Steslow, and I'll see you in the next episode.